From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore, and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face, and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart, the adventure starts here. A very good afternoon, Stuart. Hi, FM 101.9. Kate Turkington, I'm going traveling with Kate. Great program coming up for you. I'm taking you first to a tropical island. No, not Robinson Crusoe, another much bigger tropical island. We're going to be talking to a poet who happens to be a psychiatrist, who happens to be a traveler of note, who happens to have just accomplished the most amazing journey. And then, of course, later on in the program, I'll be suggesting some books for you to read as armchair reading, aeroplane reading, sitting in the back of a car, sitting at the dentist, whatever. Uh, so that's the program for today. So I want you to imagine a tropical island. And as I said, it's not a Robinson Crusoe-sized island. This island has 1,600 kilometers of palm-fringed coastline. Think of that, 1,600 kilometers of coastline and golden beaches rule. You can do all kinds of things. You can get active with water sports. If you're a beach babe, you can lie on the beach. It's got histories. It's got ancient cultures. It's got mountains. It's got forests, waterfalls, and is still one of the top five biodiversity hotspots in the world, but still, I think, relatively known, unknown rather, as a tourist destination. So I'm going to give you a bit of a clue. Think the Indian Ocean, but forget Mauritius and the Maldives. So go down south, think of a map, go down south to the tip of India, cross those impossibly blue seas, and where do you land up? You land up in Sri Lanka, which is one of my best holiday destinations ever. And still, in spite of soaring air flies all over the airfares all over the world, that was an unintentional pun, by the way, soaring uh, airfares, it's still a reasonably affordable place to visit. So that's Sri Lanka. Still relatively unknown. Remember, it used to be called Salon in the old days. Still today, relatively unknown as a tourist destination and unspoiled. And it's got a gorgeous all-round year climate that practically guarantees sun and calm seas wherever you go. If you're a diver or a snorkeler, 
There are coral reefs. Oh, wonderful, wonderful fish. There are sandbars. There are tranquil lagoons. There are lush rainforests. There are tea gardens, paddy fields. I'll tell you about visiting a tea factory in just uh, a moment. There's abandoned palaces. There's bustling markets and gems galore. Maybe you don't know this. Sri Lanka is home to one of the biggest varieties of precious stones in the world. And you can really pick up precious stones at very, very good prices. So think a blue or a star sapphire. Think an aquamarine or a moonstone. Think of topazes, emeralds, rubies. And there are affordable craftspeople there who will fashion the stones you buy into unique pieces of jewellery. So Sri Lanka, lovely, lovely destination with lovely, lovely people. And I'll be telling you more about it in just a moment. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore, and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face, and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart, the adventure starts here. 101.9 High FM, I'm telling you about Sri Lanka. I visited Sri Lanka just before lockdown. I was very, very lucky to get there and get home uh, just in time. And as I was saying to you, it really does have something for everyone. Whether you're a beach babe or a surfing hunk, you just love a beach holiday, you love your history, you love your culture... And national parks, lovely national parks, there really is something for everyone. The better-known beaches in the south, if you go east, the beaches are relatively unknown still. And there are two monsoon winds that bring rain at different times to different areas. So it's actually Sri Lanka's a year-round destination, so you choose the place that doesn't have the monsoon at uh, that time. Lovely, lovely national parks, as I was saying, with over 90 mammal species, including, I may say, some very highly endangered ones. Water creatures, there are I th- lots and lots. I think I, I wrote down 26 different kinds of uh, cetaceans, from whales to dolphins. Asian elephants, I'm, 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 I'm a bit... Um, I, I, I sit on the fence over the Asian 
uh, elephant because in South Africa we are so lucky. We can go to the bush. We can see elephants in their natural state, whether you go to Kruger, whether you go down to KwaZulu-Natal, Eastern Cape, uh, Northwest Province, Medique, Pilansburg, we are lucky. We can see elephants in their natural, uh, natural state. You will see them in their natural state in Sri Lanka, in the national parks, but you will also see working elephants in the fields, and, and they are chained, and they do have uh, guys on their back um, guiding guiding them. So it, it's a bit difficult when you come from a place like South Africa to to watch those Asian elephants, unless you are in a national park. We saw a sloth bear, uh, very aptly named because it dawdled across the road. I think one of the seven deadly sins is sloth, isn't it? Anyway, it dawdled across the road, took forever to cross the road, but we were very, very lucky to see it. Our guide tried his hardest to find leopards in one national park. Apparently it has quite a high density of leopards, but we, we didn't see one. But we saw wild buffaloes, we saw samba deer, uh, and we saw we were very lucky. We saw a couple of Sri Lanka's rarest mammals, uh, a red slender loris, which is uh, a bit like a, a sloth, and a purple-faced uh, langur. And birders, if you're a birder, you'll be in seventh he heaven because there are over 500 species and 20 uh, endemics. So really, as I say, it's one of the few uh, mega diversity biospots in the uh, world. And of course, if you're a history buff, well, you can wander through the last strongholds of the Sri Lanka kings. There are famous relics of Buddhas. There are exquisitely carved shrines and temples. There are colonial forts. Uh, it may not be a very big island, um, Sri Lanka, but it's got eight UNESCO World Heritage Sites, all extremely uh, well preserved. And alongside all these things to do and to see and to visit, there's absolutely a dazzling array of accommodation from very affordable. If you want to go backpacking, it's a safe, great place to go uh, backpacking. So whether you fancy a palace, you can stay in a palace, you can stay in a friendly B&B, you can stay in a very chic boutique hotel, a jungle lodge, backpackers hostel. There is something for everyone at prices for everyone. And if you're a shopaholic, <laughs> uh, well, Sri Lanka's an absolute mecca. You've got glitzy mulls in Colombo, the capital. I mean, I hate mulls, but they, they have glitzy mulls with latest international uh, fashion. Why? Because Sri Lanka is a major clothes manufacturer. So you will find labels, French labels, Italian labels, in these boutiques in Sri Lanka at half the price that you would if you were in Paris or, or Rome or 
Milan. And then, of course, you've got handicraft shops, you've got stalls, you've got brasswork, you've got silverware, you've got handmade boutiques, textiles, lace, wood carvings, and silk. Beautiful, beautiful silk. You can pick up a few silk scarves for not a lot of rand. So, and the Sri Lankans themselves are really some of the gentlest people friendliest people in the world. They went through, as so many countries in the world have, they went through a bitter civil war decades ago. Finished now, and certainly we saw no signs of anything other than friendliness and helpfulness wherever we went. Um, just to tell you very quickly about some of my favourite memories, we did a boat trip on the Nagombo Lagoon, and that's one of Sri Lanka's largest coastal lagoons. So you chug along in a small boat. There are fishermen. Oh, and the fish! If you're if you love fish, my word! We actually climbed out of our boat on a sandbar, and with our toes in the sand, we dug for clams, and we found them. Uh, I might tell you. So we chugged along. We eventually ended up in a mangrove forest where the local ladies had prepared a, a barbecue, a braai lunch for us of, of course, prawns, fish, fresh veggies, rice, and the clams we'd, the clams we'd picked up with our toes. And then so many historic places. I don't know which to which to uh, describe one of the most famous, Sigaria, the Lion Rock. Uh, apparently it's a marvel which baffles even modern-day architects. I had an architect with me on my trip, and she just couldn't believe it. It's nearly 200 metres high. A king built his palace on top of it, the frescoes, the lovely frescoes are still there. And halfway up, I must tell you, I didn't manage to climb the whole way. Managed to climb up halfway, and there's a gateway in the form of an enormous lion. That's why it's called Lion Rock. You can go to Spice Gardens, and in Candy, uh, an old colonial capital, there are royal botanical gardens. Oh, royal palms amazing trees and to my delight an orchid house which which will which will delight you if you love orchids and plants and lastly we went to a, a very famous old Garagama tea estate the factory I think the factory was still working in the way it was working a hundred years ago no fancy machines just workers old conveyor belts with tea leaves. You know, your tea, the tea plant is a member of the um, gardenia family. And the workers, the ladies, just pick the very, very tips of the plants and they are made into whatever tea you may be drinking uh, this afternoon. What way we didn't go on the, on the tea estate was something called the withering room. Everybody decided it was a bit dangerous to go in the withering room because we always decided we were withered enough and we didn't need any more withering. But there you go, Sri Lanka. Think about it as 
an affordable destination and really a destination that has something for young, old, fit, unfit, walking wounded or whomsoever. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore, and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face, and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart, the adventure starts here. 101.9 High FM, Kate Turkington, talking now about a book that's going to fascinate you and make you think. It's called Living in Two Worlds. It's published by Quick Fox. It's by two Ians, Ian McCallum and Ian Mitchell, both of whom, surprisingly enough, uh, were Springbok rugby players. I'll, I'll, um, a bit later on, Ian, I'll explain why I say surprisingly enough. And I think in the past run I've interviewed you over the years, the idea of a Springbok rugby player and a wonderful, sensitive poet like you are yourself just doesn't seem to go hand in hand. So there you are. You've, you've bashed stereo. You've bashed stereotypes. Anyway, Living in Two Worlds, published by Quick Fox, the subtitle is Addressing humanity's greatest challenge. That's, that's quite a, that's quite a, a, a think in itself. It's the, the book is a result of a month, five, of a four month, 5,000 kilometer non-motorized journey. What do I mean by non-motorized? In other words, the guys walked Kayak cycled, that's Ian Mitchell and Ian McCallum, through six countries across southern Africa, from the Atlantic Ocean in the west to the Indian Ocean in the east. So now, medical doctor, psychiatrist, author, poet, former rugby springbok, Ian McCallum, joins me to talk about the book he wrote with Ian Mitchell, Living in Two Worlds. Thank you. Ian, great to talk to you again. Thank you, Kate. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, why the journey? I mean, you you went four months, 5,000 kilometers. Why did you do it? Well, I think um, it will probably sound pretty obvious, but the main reason for doing this is that both Ian Nicola and myself have had the most wonderful exposure to wild areas in southern Africa, including times when we have lived in Botswana, working together as, as co-wilderness guides. You might, for example, yeah. say, what is this like doing as a wilderness guide? Well, I took a sabbatical from my, my, my psychiatric practice back in 1998 and um, went off into, into the northern reaches of Botswana um, where I worked as a guide and lo and behold 
I discovered that while I was there, that I, in fact, was working in one of the most extensive consulting rooms in the world. And the reason for this was because of the number of people who would come to this area to to stay for a short while. We would spend time with them to see how their lives were changed, not so much by Ian Mickler or myself, but how they are changed by the exposure to these wild areas. And this this really was something which made me far more aware of the value of these wild areas, wild wild places in our lives, which included obviously a a growing sense of concern for the future of these, these wild areas. And I think out of that was the, 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 the initiative. This became the, the sort of the brooding ground of wait a minute. We need to do something to promote the importance of these wild areas in our lives not only for the sake of, of, of the animals, but I think also for the sake of human beings who we, are, we wondered, you know, um, who and what would we be without these places or wild animals in our lives. When you said you saw people come to the bush and change their yes. lives, in what way? Yes. Can you describe in what way you think that it changed their lives? Okay, well, what happens is if you look at the, the the whole field of analytical or therapeutic work in psychiatry and, and in my work, one of the goals of the work is to witness at some stage a shift in the way that people think about themselves and their relationships. It's just a shift, okay? This happened while we were guiding. People would come into the, into northern Botswana, into the Lenyanti area where we were working, and subsequent to that in, in the uh, in the Okavango Delta, and often, often, you'd have an extensive uh, words like this: "I feel as if I've come home." Now that is a shift, okay? Mm. I feel as if I've come home. It's just an added sense of of belonging, of wonder, of of realizing that. They, they didn't know that animals behaved in this particular way or that particular way. So it's a shift in perceptions. And this really became increasingly important in the message that we wanted to, to put across and which ultimately we would like to think we've made some attempt in this, this, um, this book, Living in Two Worlds. So I- here we go. Sorry? Yes, no, I was going to say, why Ian Mickler? How, why, why he? I, I, I asked because I'm thinking of people, uh, like, uh, Ronald Fiennes, who I interviewed several times in yes. the past. Yes. And I remember he always said when he was doing his cross-polar expeditions on a two-man, Expedition, he ended up absolutely hating the other person. Mind you, he's very eccentric, run of fines. And also the other person hating him. So it's quite, uh, it's quite important that if you make a journey like you made, four months on foot, kayaking, that you choose the partner very, very carefully. So, so why in particular Ian Mickler? Well, I think, first of all, Ian Nicker has got, has got a remarkable history. He's, he's younger than me, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, he worked as a stockbroker in, in Johannesburg and part of a very successful firm. 
and decided that he didn't want to do this anymore. He then took off of his own accord to go and work in Botswana, and there he put his ornithological skills into practice. The story goes that in that time, he met me through my sister, you know, and um, the two of us just took an instant kind of liking to each other. I just had a deep respect for, for this man who was able to give up the corporate life and to go and do what he was doing in Botswana. So on top of this, he, he became a very, very successful um, investigative journalist, mm-hmm. all right? He was doing some yes. writing during the 1990s. He was being featured in some of the the, the wildlife magazines. Um, he incredibly bright, and he has a he has a way and a personality style which is different to mine. And I think one of the, the most important aspects of our relationship is that I think both of us feel reasonably comfortable in our own skins yes. and in our own particular styles. So I've never had any sense of competition with Ian, never. Okay. I'm quite happy to take the lead, which I did. For example, at, at the beginning of the of the expedition, um, from the point of view of the organisation, and then getting the, the whole team together, that was my role. And then, as we got into the expedition itself, you saw Ian's leadership skills coming to the fore, and I valued that. So we made it very very clear that this is this is important that we were able to show the backup team that we would stand together through thick and thin, and we did this. Now, tell us about the journey. Where did it take you? Well, it took us from the Skeleton Coast um, up through the Horosub River, which is the, the, in the Nama Desert. Um, in, that was walking. We picked up our cycles at a place called um, Burnpuros, and then we cycled into the northern reaches of Namibia, down in a southerly direction, via the uh, uh, Tosha National Park, the southern borders of the park, across to Tumque on the eastern side of, Bots- of, of Namibia into Botswana. From, from Botswana, we then cycled to the Okavango Delta, kayaked across the Okavango Delta, which also included a brilliant section called the Cylinder Spillway, which just happened yeah. to be in flood. That's you cannot, you cannot kayak that today. Yeah. I, well, so we kayak through the Chobe and then into the Chobe National Park via the Sabuti Channel. We walked through Chobe up to the, to the Caprivi Strip, cycled to the Zambezi, kayaked down the Zambezi to Victoria Falls, <laughs> took our cycles, went into Zimbabwe, cycled across Hwangi, back into Botswana, down through the Makari Khadi Pans, into South Africa, r- across in an easterly direction to the northern Kruger National Park, into the Greater Limpopo in, in Mozambique, down to Maputo. We took a dhow, so we sailed across Maputo Bay to Santa Maria, and from there we walked practically all the way to Cape Vidal in Kozulu Natal. Yeah. So those, we covered six countries, six countries um, with a wonderful backup team, let me tell you. Um, so we had the vehicle, which would go ahead and get provisions or sometimes help set up camp for us, but what Ian and I did, we was entirely non-motorized. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, before I come to the insights that emerge, you talk about the yeah. insights yeah. that emerge from your journey. Yeah. 
questions yeah. that we all should be asking ourselves. You talk about, yeah. and it fascinated me, you, you, you have this theory, I can breathe. I can breathe. Yes. Talk us through that, Ian. Yeah. Okay, so what we're looking at here um, is really reference to one of the chapters in the book with, with that particular title. And I can't breathe <clears throat> is, is, is something which became something of a of a mantra or buzzword, if you like, or buzz sentence um, in 2021 with the, the death of that particular American man who um, had George the, Floyd. The, the George, George Floyd. Floyd, yeah, who, who before he died, those were his words. He says, "I can't breathe." Okay. And that, that, that would, that had a profound influence, I think, on, on the, the tolerance, the thinking of what is on earth are we doing as a species to each other. And then I took that, that particular statement, I can't breathe, as a metaphor for not only sometimes the feeling which people have in, when they enter into analysis, a sense that they are suffocating, you know, that they are locked into a world which they would love to see changes in their own lives, locked into relationships which are, are either bullying and so on, and then taking that that even further into the environment. And if, if the earth, if the earth was on the couch, so to speak, what do you think it might say? And I will suggest that the earth might say, right now I can't breathe. Why? Because the human knee, the human knee of consumptive behavior of our, of our particular lifestyles is suffocating what is best for us, suffocating the, the earth. Now, this is all, as I say, this is metaphor. These are just different ways of, of, um, of looking at the human relationship with the natural environment. And so uh, I then use, have been using my skills, knowledge, experience for whatever that might mean to promote an environmental message in the same way that what Ian Mickler does in doing the scientific research to back up some of the philosophical insights into what we are, the, the, this human relationship in, in and on this planet. And, and going back to, going back to the insights, that uh, emerged from your journey. You said yeah. questions came up that really demand to be answered by all of us. What questions? Yeah. Okay. Well, for me, one of the most profound insights, and now I'm speaking very, very personally here, and it is mentioned in one of the chapters, which I think is in Science, Poetry, and Nature, is that one of the insights for me was around the, the concept of keystone species. Um, we were following elephant migration routes, okay? We were in constant contact for, for a large, when I say constant, for a large time during our journey, we were in intimate contact with wild animals. And the concept of keystone species became increasingly alive in me. What are keystone species and how important are they in ecosystems and in the environment? Well, this doesn't need too much spelling out because a keystone species, very simply, is an animal, a, an insect, a bird. It could be some, it could be a, a, a plant form. 
that if you take that out of the, the equation, ecosystems are either seriously threatened or they collapse, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, an elephant is a keystone species. You take elephants out of the equation and the, and the impact on the environment ultimately is devastating. Um, kelp on our, off- on, on our, on our fast-based shores here of Cape Town are keystone species. Why? Because of food, because of shelter, because of numerous other activities that make other life possible, okay? Dung beetles are keystone species. Honey bees are keystone species. And, uh, and so it goes. So here comes the question. And this is the insight. Are human beings a keystone species? And the answer one has to conclude is no. Exactly. That if we, yeah, if we were to be taken out of the equation today, I think nature generally would probably breathe a sigh of relief. And this is quite a, a damning statement in many, many ways. And so the big question is, if we are not a keystone species, then what on earth are we? Are we a parasite? Um, what, what are we? Uh, I take the leap and then, and then, then beg the question. Look, um, I don't sit easily with not being a keystone species, but how about, how about keystone individuals? Individuals who make a difference. And that to me is, was, was the chord that was struck is that we, we, we cannot ever get through to the masses, you know? To me, there's a big difference between getting through to the individual, finding the heart of the individual, and asking that individual, do you have it in you to be a keystone, to be a keystone individual? Somebody who does make a difference, who does give a damn, who does know that some things are not for sale, and therefore, you are, you are in a way encouraging, if not questioning, a personal ethic in our sense of coexistence with all living things. So that for me, for example, was, was one of the big insights um, which came out of this, this journey. I love that. I think that's it's such a wonderful metaphor because one of the questions I was going to ask you, which in a way you've answered, was what can we as individuals do? Now, if we each think of ourselves, as you suggested, as a keystone person, it means when I do turn the tap off while I'm brushing my teeth, I am making, I am making a tiny difference. If I do pick up a piece of litter, I am making a difference. It's not like the boy with the finger in the dike. I will, if enough of us have that kind of approach, Mm. it will make a difference. Just hearing you say that, Kate, I I, I get goose flesh because that's exactly what it's about. It's doing the little things, just the little things, and all of us doing those little things together, and then be surprised. Be surprised, because it does lead to... uh, Another avenue of thought, you see, is that it's very difficult to avoid the possibility that uh, it's, it's too late, actually, be stuffed as a species. And, <laughs> of course, um, this is very quickly labeled as being pessimistic, pessimistic, pessimistic yes. which it is. But let's have a look at its opposite, the optimism. And here, here is another challenge is to get our language right. This is not about becoming optimistic, by the way. 
Optimism is the belief that everything is going to turn out well, no matter what. Not Mr. McCall, the, though. <laughs> yeah. Havel had made that statement very clear. He said, no. There's a difference between optimism and hope. Let's, let's do the right thing. Hope is about doing the right thing, okay, no matter what, and then allowing yourself to be surprised by what does happen. But do the little things. That feeds into hope. Do the little things and do them well. Because, uh, you know, you were talking about pessimism there, because one of the uh, paragraphs in the book that really rock me back, and I'm going to quote uh, some of it. You say, in the nearly 50 years, you were talking about yeah. the photograph that was taken from the moon, and I think the yeah. astronaut was Frank Borman, and he saw the Earth from space, and he put his thumb up, and the Earth fit behind his thumb, and he realized yeah. the insignificance, in fact, of the planet and humankind. And then you write that in the nearly 50 years since that picture was taken, half of the world's wetlands, peat beds, rainforests have vanished. And you go on, so many square kilometers of the Arctic Sea, the size of Germany and Switzerland have melted. Human population has doubled. Iconic elephants, uh, rhinos going. So it, when you read these statistics, it's very hard yes. not to feel pessimistic would be the word. Yes. yes. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And this, this of course, um, leads into one of the challenges, is that how on earth do we get this message across in a way that – is, is not as depressing as it potentially is, you know, um, because it's, this is not good news. Sadly, there's very little, very little humor in trying to get the environmental message across. Um, so these are just the realities that we are going to have to face. And I think, um, the realities is also part of, of a, of, of what I would like to think is a growing maturity, being able to, to, to look at the world with both eyes, right? Um, not not according to one's um, belief systems or or uh, uh, convictions, but according to what is immediately appropriate, acceptable, meaningful. It's it's again it's it's, it's a personal ethic. Eh? Mm-hmm. So, okay, what can one say? Well, what what gives me hope is I have quite a lot of grandchildren and every single one of them at school and at home is being made ecologically aware. That's a very fancy phrase, but but they won't drink through a plastic straw or... So I think there's hope with the younger generation. You look at somebody like Greta Thunberg, lover or hater, but she, she, as a small schoolgirl, she raised awareness about climate change. So I think the youth is one of our hopes, certainly. Yeah. Well, I would like to, to agree with you here. And maybe you and I can speak just for a moment as something of, of, of two individuals in the, in the, in the sort of the, as, as elders, for want of a better word, okay? <laughs> I think one of the most the saddest 
the saddest accusation that any older person can can receive is being accused of being an old fart. Okay. <laughs> and then you get there are plenty of them around. Huh? Yeah. You have written a book. We know you guys are, are making big mistakes. Exactly. What you and what we have to be able to do is to be able to go to the youth, the young people, and and mean it because you see it in action today. I love your spirit. Yes. How can I help you? How can I help you? That is all. And I, and I will tell you this. You are going to make mistakes. But please try not to make the mistakes that we did. Mm-hmm. Then you've got them on your side. Mm-hmm. Then you've got them. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. How can I help you? Uh, Ian, I'm going to finish by actually, I don't know if you've got it in front of you, but I've got your poem, Have We Forgotten. Have you got it in front of you? I would love you to read it. You would read it far, that, be, far better than me. No, that, that is the poem, Wilderness, eh? Have We Forgotten, you call it, that wilderness mm-hmm. is not okay. a place. All right. Okay. okay. But Ian, as I said, yes, I want Ian, <laughs> Ian McCallum to read his poem called Have We Forgotten? Okay, go well, ahead. Well, thank you very much for, for, for asking me to, to do that, um, Kate. The, the, the poem itself, by the way, is called Wilderness, but that is the first line. Okay. But I, I, will, I will recite it to you. Um, here we go. Wilderness. Have we forgotten? That wilderness is not a place, but a pattern of soul where every tree, every bird and beast is a soul maker. Have we forgotten that wilderness is not a place, but a moving feast of stars, footprints, scales and beginnings? Since when did we become afraid of the night and that only the bright stars come? Or that our moon is not a moon, unless it is full. By whose command were the animals, through groping fingers, one for each hand, reduced to the big and the little five? Have we forgotten that every creature is within us, carried by tides of earthly blood, and that we named them? Have we forgotten that wilderness is not a place, but a season? And that we are in its final hour. Oh, Ian, that was wonderful. Thank you. Oh, the uh, the hair on my arms is standing up. Thanks so much for being with us. And and congratulations on the book. And I will change my introduction so that I'm pronouncing Ian Mickler uh, properly. (laughs) An amazing person I'm talking to now and a book, The Results of a Four-Month, 5,000-Kilometre Non-Motorised Journey, what I mean by non-motorised, walking, kayaking, cycling, by two men, authors Ian Mickler and Ian McCallum, through six countries across southern Africa, from the Atlantic Ocean in the west, the Skeleton Coast, to the Indian Ocean in the east. I'm talking now to Ian McCallum, medical doctor, psychiatrist, author, poet, former rugby springbok, as both the Ian's were, Ian McCallum and Ian Mickler, about their new book 
called Living in Two Worlds. Its subtitle is Addressing Humanity's Greatest Challenge. So, welcome, Ian McCallum. From the highest mountains to the bluest seas, the driest deserts to the icy poles, Kate Turkington has traveled there. And now she's inviting you to travel with her through your radio. Travels with Kate is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Cape Union Mart. Kindle your spirit of adventure. The adventure starts here. Only on 101.9 High FM. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore, and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face, and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart, the adventure starts here. 101.9, Hi FM, Kate Turkington, and we're talking books. And of course, we've just been talking to Ian McCallum about his book, Living in Two Worlds, the one he wrote with Ian Mitchell, both former Springbok rugby players, interestingly enough, and its subtitle is Addressing Humanity's Greatest Challenge. As I said to you, read it, it will, it will really make you think. But a book, if you like walking, now, you don't have to be a fitness freak. You don't have to have your water bottles and your sexy running shorts. Lovely book. You may have heard the name Willie Olafier. Willie Olafier has been writing books about hiking trails for as long as I can remember. And his new one, Hiking Trails of South Africa, is actually the fifth edition. It's published by Strake. Again, you'll find it in any bookshop, Walking Hiking Trails of South Africa by Willie Olafier. Now, don't be worried. I love walking. I'm not a hiker, but I walk my dogs and I like to uh, do walks. But at the beginning of the book, before he tells you about all kinds of trails, whether they're a kilometre long, whether they're a five-day hike like the Otter Trail, he gives you some really useful information. He talks about permits, whether you need them or not. And he gives you some trail terminology. He distinguishes between a hiking trail, which he says is a continuous well-defined route through a natural or human-made environment in which the user carries equipment and food in a backpack, and usually with overnight stops. Backpacking trails are not along designated footpaths, so you can go, you can blaze your own uh, trail. Um, No overnight facilities, and you either sleep in the open or a cave or wherever you can find. The wilderness trails, some of you will have done, like the wilderness trails in Kruger or Shishlui or many of the game parks, uh, you reserve in advance and you go with a, uh, a qualified ranger and tracker and you will walk for two to three to five days. And then he does something called interpretive, uh, interpretive, interpretative, I've got to get that right, 
once an English teacher, always an English teacher, interpretative tales. And they're usually no more than a few kilometres long. And they very, they sort of emphasise education and the interpretation of the environment. I know, for example, there's one in um, Beaufort West in the Crewe National Park, which is a little fossil trail. only takes about half an hour to walk along, and there are signposts at each stopping point, and they tell you this is where that dinosaur was or this fossil was. And then, of course, the day walks. The day is somebody who wants to... Uh, go out and stretch their legs without having a heavy backpack. And then, of course, you've got things like the park runs on a Sunday morning, which are all over the world now. And did you know they were started by a South African couple who actually now live in London? You can go to Rome, you can go to Rio de Janeiro, you can go to almost anywhere in the world now, and on a Sunday you can do a park run. So Willie goes into that and explains the trails. So when you find a trail in the book, you can decide for yourself whether you're up to it or whether your family or friends or colleagues are, are up to it. Then he talks a lot about planning. How often have you read a story about hikers who are lost on Table Mountain and these very expensive search and rescue teams have to come out and find them. And very often, and I'm being very pejorative here, but I do speak from a tiny bit, not my personal experience, but of people I know who've got lost on Table Mountain because you know what it's like. Four seasons in one day, you set off in bright sunshine, then the mist comes down and whatever. So Willie does a very, very good section on planning, whether you're doing a day walk or whether you're going to do something long like the, um, what's the other long one? One of my daughters is just on the oyster, the oyster catcher trail. That was a, a five-day hike. So he talks about everything from footwear to backpacks to sleeping uh, bags to socks. Really, really sensible, uh, sensible uh, advice. Then he talks about trail ethics. I mean, obviously, don't litter. Avoid shortcuts. All kinds of things uh, like that. And then hiking safety. First aid kit, what you should uh, carry, what you should do if you're bitten by a snake. And then we come on to the actual trails themselves. So he groups them under Southwestern Cape and the Little Crew, the Garden Route and the Eastern Cape, uh, and Pumalanga and Mpopo, Hauteng and the Northwest, and then the Great Crew and the Namaqualand and Kalahari. So wherever you're going, whether you're planning any kind of trip and you fancy a walk, this is the perfect book for you. A day walk like the big tree down in the Sitikama uh, forest in Storms River uh, mouth or, or, a long, or a long trail. Just one word of warning about the trails in the national parks, which I have done in the past. You must book them well in advance. Kruger and um, the ones particularly in Shishlui, uh, in Pelosi Park, you really need to book a year 
in advance, but so worthwhile. And a very good tip from me, don't go with strangers. It's eight people on the trail. Try and get together a group of friends or family. No kids under 12, uh, by the way. They say over 60 you have to have a doctor's certificate, but I've never, ever been asked to produce uh, a doctor's certificate, you know whether you're fit or not. And why do you want to know the people you're with? Because once, many moons ago, I was doing a Kruger Park trail and there was a retired British Army colonel whose motivation was to do 30 k's a day. And we said, no, 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 no. We want to sit on the banks of the river and watch the hippos. We want to look at the birds. We want to meander through the park at our own pace. So go with friends or go with people uh, you know or colleagues or family. It doesn't always happen like that. And your guide, your very experienced guide, will sit down with you on the first night and, and get a feel of the group. What is it you want to do? Are you birders? Do you want to find elephants? Do you want to look at plants uh, whatever. So a great book if you're a walker, a hiker, a plodder, uh, a fitness freak or fanatic, really, this book of Willie Olafier's Hiking Trails of South Africa, fifth edition, published by Strake, is definitely the book for you. So that's all we have time for this week. We'll be back next week. Thanks to Uzi, my controller, Thanks to Harry, my producer. As I always say to you, lots of love, lots of life. Take care, not only of yourself, but of others too. Adventure. It's not some rare gene inherited by a few people. It's that human instinct to escape, explore, and discover new places and experience new things. That's why at Cape Union Mart, we strive to awaken this adventurous spirit. Because the best gifts are not things, but moments you create with people who matter. Every adventure starts with Cape Union Mart, with gifts like Salomon, the North Face and K-Way Adventure Gear. Cape Union Mart, the adventure starts here.